0: Welcome to Casting Light, the entertainment lighting podcast. Thanks for downloading. We're talking about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at podcasting light, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin, and with me is my co-host, Stephanie Schechter. Stephanie, where can people find some more information about you and your work?
1: You can find me online at Stephanie Schechter on Facebook or Stephanie Schechter on LinkedIn.com.
0: Today on the podcast, we have Mitchell Bogard. Mitchell is a very experienced lighting designer for theater, dance, multi-camera talk shows, narrative television shows, and also has extensive experience as a lighting director. He's done a lot of work in the last 25 years, including lighting Rachel Ray's daytime TV show where I am his programmer, and Stephanie is one of my alternates. Thank you for joining us, Mitchell.
2: Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here.
0: Now, you've designed lighting for theater and dance. You've designed lighting for television. You've been a lighting director. And a lot of your projects have been very high profile uh, with exacting talent or very specific needs, including lighting Sesame Street and lighting Rachel Ray. What was the beginning for you? Did you know that you wanted to do this before you got to college? Like, when did you figure this out?
2: No. Well, you know, I was always in—my parents took me to Broadway shows when I was— I think I'm going to say seven was probably the first one I went to see, and that was I think Bye Bye Birdie. And That's a pretty good one. Yeah, that was a very good one. And whenever they went, instead of getting a babysitter for me and my sister, um, they took us. So I had I was exposed to theater at a very young age, and I and I saw quite a lot of it um, from seven, eight, nine, ten. I was I saw a lot of <laughs> a lot of Broadway shows. <laughs> and and then i i used to get into buying the albums too you know like oh, to camelot and my fair lady and you name it i used to as a young kid i remember 9 10 11 years old just sitting in the living room listening to these albums which made me a little different from my friends i think anyway so when i went to college i was uh, actually was a history major first but you know i always had this love of theater you know even when i went to camp as summer camp as a kid i would always be in the plays so, I took uh, Intro to Theater, and then I took an Intro to Technical Theater course.
0: Now, uh, where, where was this? Now, this
2: was the State University of New York at Buffalo, Okay, 1971 was, was when I entered. And I just kept taking theater courses along with the history courses, and then it got to a point where I realized that I, I preferred what I was doing in theater more than what I was doing in history. And I also had a mentor, the technical director of the theater department, a guy named Paul Brown, who was, I mean, I was 17 when I was a freshman. He was uh, 22, and he was a, um, an instructor, and he was the technical theater instructor. So he wasn't that much older than me, and we became friends. And he got me my first summer stock job, where he was the technical director in 1973. And anyway, one thing led to the next, and I just had this... i th- I guess I had this natural ability to do the technical theater stuff as I was learning it. It came very easily to me, you know, carpentry and even costume design and and um, electrics and makeup and everything. Everything I did, I kind of did well. And because everybody wanted to be an actor or a director, and nobody wanted to be a technician, let alone a designer, when the, um, the students in the department. So, and anyone who showed any ability um, could go a long way. So by the time I was a junior, I, they were paying me as an undergraduate assistant. Um, That's and, a good deal? Yes, it was a very good deal, and then as a senior also. So by the time I graduated, I figured out that um, I made more money going to school than, than I paid them, <laughs> than my parents paid them. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's how it started. I mean, I it was at at the State University of New York at Buffalo, which was a very unusual department at the time because it was um, didn't have a traditional proscenium stage. Everything was an alternate kind of alternative kind of space, and it had um, a well, lot. That's of
0: interesting because I know like it became really fashionable to build educational theaters and you know black boxes and have them be thrust stages, but it wasn't for a long time.
2: Right, that's true. Um, when I actually came to New York after I graduated and I started working in proscenium stages, I was very weak at it because all my experience was in non-traditional spaces, and I really had to learn how to work on a proscenium stage after I got out of school, which was kind of bizarre, but um, that's that's what had to happen. Um, but, I, but working in the alternative spaces gave me a different advantage, I think, than than people who only came from proscenium stages, because I had to, th- I really was able to come up with designs and uh, to deal with alternative spaces, it let, it let, get my creative juices flowing a little bit more, I think, because I always, everything was always a challenge, how to do this show in this strange space. Um, well, what's
0: what's an example of one of those shows? What's uh, and, and what were some of the challenges that you faced, uh, especially someone that was, was still relatively new to doing any of those?
2: Um, well, so we're in a we're in a space called the Courtyard Theater back um, when I was in in Buffalo, and this is a, just this big open space that has a weird little does have a little weird proscenium at the end of it, but it's a non functional proscenium. There's no line sets. There's nothing there. It's just like a you just go three feet up. (laughs) So you're going from this, this big open, nothing space. And then you have this three foot proscenium at the end. So it's like a, uh, a bi-level space. And, um, and that's it. It's essentially a black box. Uh, Other than that, you have to pretty much create a lot of hanging positions that weren't there. And, um, audience would be seated, depending on the show, in any number of ways. You know, they'd be on the sides, they'd be in the front, they'd be upstage looking downstage and downstage looking upstage. So there are all these different configurations. In that same theater, we, we put in like almost like a boxing ring. I remember lighting this play called The Blood Knot, Athel Fugard's The Blood Knot, and we did it in a 360... In the same space, in a, but it was 360, and it was like almost like a boxing ring, um, and it had to be lit from four sides instead of one side. Um, so things like that—you know—you're constantly lighting things that were just in different configurations, and you just had to think out of the box in order to get it right, you know. Um, but when I came to New York, I remember first time on a proscenium, I was a little lost. <laughs> and I had to, um, make, I had to relearn or learn pretty much. My only, my only, um, teaching about proscenium was textbook when I was in college. I didn't have one to work on in the real world. So I had to pick that up once I got to New York. So, so I became a theater major and I graduated and got my BA and then I went back. and got a master's degree because they made me a deal I couldn't refuse and they paid for the whole thing. I didn't have to pay a cent. So I went back. It wasn't my intention to go back, but I, I did cause I wanted to get a free master's degree. And I also wanted to be a big fish in a little pond, which is what I was in Buffalo and New York. There was one year between the time I left uh, undergraduate and went back to graduate. And that one year in New York, I was working off-off-Broadway and then off-Broadway. But I was a little fish in a very big pond. And being up in Buffalo, it was the opposite. And I was still a young guy. and So I, I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> so in,
0: in, in that year, what was the scene here?
2: The scene here. So that was, oh, God, 1976, I think. Um... The scene here was, uh, you would buy a backstage magazine and you would read, um, all the, uh, the for hire, um, section where they were always looking for crew. Um, uh, besides actors, they were looking for crew all the time and there were all these off, off Broadway showcases. Um, and I would, I answered the ad and it's no pay. It's for free. So I had a day job. I worked work nine to five in some office somewhere making, A little bit of money, and then I would. After that, I would go down to the West Village and um, work for this uh, little off-off Broadway showcase company for free, and that was still considered professional New York work. You could always put that on your resume; it was professional work, although you weren't getting paid for it. And then after that first uh, show that I did, everything filters out. The people who were really committed stay, the people who are less committed leave. So when the next show rolls around, I like went from the electrician to the lighting designer for the very next, for the very next show. So it was, a, it was a very good experience um, to learn how, you know, it was, it was a you know, the bottom of the ladder experience in New York, but it was, everyone's got to start there and work their way up. So it was very useful. But then I went back to Buffalo, got the master's degree. and Then... <laughs> After that, I went to Boston. I was working for a, um, a little rental, lighting rental company and during the day and at night. I was working for the Boston Opera building scenery. And a friend of mine gave me a call one day. He was on the road with O Calcutta, the musical. Mm-hmm. And their lighting designer had just had a nervous breakdown in Beaumont, Texas, and they were looking for a new one. So they offered me the job, which was kind of wild. I was 24 years old. Um, I had never done something like this, but they didn't really care. So they flew me out to Arizona. I picked up the tour there and I spent the next three months doing Bus and Truck of Oak Calcutta. That was 1978.
0: So at that point, you had not, you had done no touring.
2: I had done, I had never done any touring. The only, my only experience prior to Oak Calcutta was what I had done, um, in Buffalo. And what I had done in the um, off-Broadway off and one off-Broadway um, show in New York. I had never toured. And I had never done any dance yet. Um, so that was my only experience. So then I had a lot of experience doing this bus and truck tour, which was wild. What, what kind of venues were we going to? We were going to seriously large venues. I mean, you 2,000-seat know, houses everywhere. Um, across the United States and Canada. And we were traveling with um, our own dimmers, our own light board. Um, um, we, uh, we would use, although we weren't traveling with our own lights, believe it or not, we would just just the control. And we would just pull up to wherever we were and I wouldn't find out what was waiting for me until I got there because that's just the way it was. Um, There was no time to um, prep it ahead of time, or at least when I entered the tour, this is how they were doing it, so um, I just had to do it the way they were doing it. And you would just walk in and see what you had and and make a yellow pad light plot on the spot and crank it out. It was trial by fire, I gotta say. Um, And a bunch of very strange people to tour with, Uh, (laughs) no doubt. Uh, but anyway, that went on for three months, and then I came back to New York, and then it was, um, what do I do now? And this is the first time I had seen the entire country. I had never seen, uh, I had only seen little chunks of the Northeast up until that point in my life. So now I had seen just about everywhere in the United States and, and much of Canada, and I decided I wanted to live in San Francisco because it was great. And But right before I was going to go, I saw an ad... Um, there was an organization, it was a clearinghouse for technical theater people, and it would, it would, um, they would call you up and say, hey, there's a, there's a, a dance company here that's looking for a TD, you're interested, and then they would send you over there. So that's what happened with me, and they sent me to the Nikolai Dance Theater, uh, to, they were looking for a technical director, and, um, I didn't get the job, and then, Two weeks later, I got another phone call from the Murray Lewis Dance Company, which was under the same umbrella, Nikolai Lewis Foundation for Dance. Anyway, and they hired me. So I became the technical director of the Murray Lewis Dance Company in 1978. And then for the next 10 years, I was touring with dance companies. I spent a year and a half with Murray Lewis and then eight and a half more years touring with all sorts of different dance companies. And that was my big entree into the world of lighting, I think. Okay. Yeah.
0: Now, what are those things that you learned then that that you've been able, you've been able to take with you since?
2: That I learned in the dance world.
0: Well, I'd say just in the very you know, since you were thrown into having to tour almost immediately, uh, dance essentially came and found you rather than you going out to find dance. Uh, what are those things that you picked up that you've been able to take with you?
2: It was uh, well, you know, it was a life lesson on how to, well, touring and going to different countries where where you have to i you have to learn their language i learned i learned tech speak in seven languages couldn't speak the languages, but I could call a show because I was, you know, I was touring as a production stage manager slash lighting director slash lighting designer. So I would always be nine times out of 10, I was calling the cues for these shows. So it forced me to learn, learn the vocabulary, technical theater vocabulary in different um, languages and the customs. They do things very differently in different countries in terms of how they set up a show. And the vast variety of venues, um, astoundingly different. So I, I learned I learned how to be adaptable. You know, I learned how to be adaptable and not panic <laughs> when something is not the way you you're used to seeing it. And that is a very handy thing to have, um, especially you know as you get into more commercial ventures where time is money, and you know, get curveballs thrown at you all the time and you got to do things very quickly because there's just not a whole lot of time. And I think I learned, I learned to figure out, you know, how to solve problems and I figured out how to stay calm about it. And that was a big help in the touring world. Now that I do television mostly all the time, you know, I, those tools I think come in very handy now.
1: Since you sort of fell into dance lighting, did you teach yourself or did you have mentors that you saw design?
2: good question um, I I knew dance lighting techniques from a from a classroom point of view I had never lit dance in college I had only lit theater um, and so I had I had gone to dance concerts I knew other designers dance lighting designers but I had never done it so I you know, I could walk on a stage and see all the side light, and the back light, and the front light, and the diagonal back light. And I saw enough concerts to know what, you know, what this lighting can do. But when I did my first lighting design for a dance company, no, you know, I had not, and I just did it. You know, I you still a light is a light is a light, right? So you still you still know how to work with lighting. Um, but I just remembered what I saw when I went to other shows, and I. And I hung a dance light plot, and it wasn't that hard for me. I just, you know, it was. It's all part of the same universe, and um, I just did it. And then I got better at it of course, as I kept going. I just loved doing dance. I thought you could do more with dance lighting than just about anything else, you know, because a- after the choreography, it's the lighting that informs time, place, mood, everything, because there's hardly any scenery in modern dance. I was doing mostly modern dance, so there was hardly any scenery uh, aside from the cyclorama. You know, ballet you have a whole set so there's a lot of other you have that to inform time place mood etc but modern dance is about the lighting after the choreography So I most of what I learned about lighting I think I learned um, from all the dance companies I worked for which were quite a few yeah.
0: Well there's also the uh, you know you don't necessarily have to, light their faces you know it, it's so much of it is about creating atmosphere and creating illumination for the the movement more than the individuals
2: right well you're, you're lighting the body i mean the fa- you, you're lighting the face but you're not lighting the face for like you're lighting the face for television which is all about the face there's nothing more important when you're doing if you're doing a talk show there's nothing more important than getting the face right in dance, you're lighting the whole body and it's, you know, it's so, it's a theatrical thing. Uh, it's so different from uh, what we do on the Rachel Ray show, for instance, <laughs> um, where, you know, we're just, people have to look normal. They have to look human and they have to look good. Um, it's more of a... A craft? No, I was going to say more of a craft than an art. That's not it. It's, they're, they're two different, they're just two different, um, techniques, you know, dance, theater. It's just, it's, the theatricality of the lighting is what it's about more than the functionality of, of, of making somebody look on television the way they would look in real life if you just saw them on the street. Actually trying to make them even look better on television than they are in real life. Uh, So it's just a different approach, an entirely different approach, right? Let's take Rachel Ray, for example. The closest we ever get to theatrical lighting is when we do a musical performance, because now you can use color and you can use more radical angles and lots of interesting cueing and things like that, similar to lighting a dance concert.
0: Uh, You know, it's good that you bring that up. You know, I feel like the, the world of television lighting has more than theater, more than dance, and more than most other kinds of performance, television lighting has changed the most in let's say the last 25 years. Uh, what's your experience with that?
2: In terms of the actual lighting, what's changed is the light level that's necessary to get a good picture. In the old days you had a gazillion foot candles of lighting because that's what the cameras needed to get a good image. You know, now you know, you can do it with 25 foot candles, whereas in the old days you needed 200 foot candles. So that opens up all the design possibilities for television because you needed so much less light. You know, you could do so much more
0: I see, because you you could never put that much illuminance on an object in color but you can now
2: be sure well now you can do anything because you just don't i mean the light levels are so low now the cameras are so fast that you, know, you, you i remember lighting a show once where we were lighting it so low like at 25 foot candles and you could see the prompter light the red the red light on the camera you could see it reflecting on the talent because the light the light levels were so low um but um so that's that's the big change really in television lighting is the, the 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 incredible cameras that that we have now they're so fast light level that's necessary to get a good image is so low and then the technology you know all these wonderful lights we have now and Sophisticated control boards. Right? So,
1: how did you transition from the dance world to the television
2: world? Um, I would I'd be on tour with a dance company, and I would come back into uh, to New York. I'd be here for let's say a month before the, before I would go out on tour again. And my very good friend uh, Alan Adelman, uh, um, who was in the television world, we went to school together, and um, after. Uh, we graduated, he went into the television world, and I went to primarily the theater and dance world. But Alan, um, would hire me as an electrician, uh, on some of his shows here in New York, and I would make more money as a commercial television electrician than I would as a lighting designer for very prominent dance companies. So that was, a, that was an extra bonus. So that's how I started. Well, that, well, that hasn't changed. <laughs> right. So I was, I would, you know, and then I worked my way up to um, being a gaffer. Um, and then I, tr- I worked my way into being a lighting designer. I made, I made the conscious decision I did not want to tour anymore with dance companies. I was really burnt out. I, it was the traveling that I couldn't handle anymore. I didn't want to get on airplanes anymore. And the story I always tell people is that when you're, when you're told that the next tour, you we're going to Paris, And you say, Oh God, I have to go to Paris again. Then you know you have a problem. (laughs) Then you know you have a serious problem. You've been on the road too long because you don't want to go to Paris. Um, and that's what happened to me. I just, I just couldn't be in another hotel again. I couldn't be on another airplane again. And then, you know, we started doing more and more one and two night stands all over the world. Um, because the economics of dance touring started getting um, more problematic. The National Endowment, you know, when Reagan came around and he, and he started slashing the National Endowment and Republican Congresses back then in the 80s, they started attacking National Endowments. So it was less money for American companies to tour abroad.
0: So that you were depending more and more on your ticket sales or on
2: Right. Some so they had to. Other. Yeah. So where in the old days, you know, they would, we would be in, in a city for two or three or even four days and then have, maybe have a day off and then go to the next city and be there for two, three days or four days and have a day off. Now it was, they were trying to pack as many performances as possible back to back to back to back. So the days off went away. And more one night stands came along, you know, one two night stands. So you're driving around in some foreign country. Uh, you're, doing, you're driving all night long. You you pull. For, here's a good example. We were in, we were doing an eight week tour of, of France, and you would drive all night pull up into the town at 8 o'clock in the morning, go right into the theater, set it up, do the show that night, strike it, get back in the vehicle, drive to the next place all night long. And you'd be lucky if you'd get like a couple hours of sleep. I mean, that's, how, that's when it was at its most insane. Um, and it was dangerous because... You know, you're falling asleep. You're falling asleep at the wheel, and you're also falling asleep in the middle of the show. You know, we would run, we would run these shows also. You know, some of these companies, you know, as I said, we had our own light boards, and sometimes, you know, we would run them ourselves. And, and when you have no sleep and you're doing all these one-night stands, you're starting to nod out of the light board. That's not a good thing.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> right.
2: So anyway, I made my transition to television because I just I wanted to stay in New York I also I was making a living doing um, working in the dance world, but that's all I was doing. I wanted to make more money, um, and um, I could certainly do that in television. Um, and um, now that I've been doing it so long, I kind of wish I could be doing more dance again. <laughs> but um, well,
0: so, what were those first couple of television shows
2: th- that I did as a lighting designer? Yeah. Um, Jane Pratt. She was an editor for uh, or. I think she was an editor for a women's magazine. Anyway, she had her own show on a and E, I I think or Lifetime in, that must have been 1992 or something that was one of the first shows I lit. Then I was doing a lot of stuff at MTV and VH1 um, a lot of uh, VJ stuff and um, it was mostly VJs running around a set and me chasing them and lighting them in all these different configurations and then these bands would come and perform on, on the shows. Like I did MTV raps and I did, that's the only one that I remember the name of, but there was thousands of these MTV shows and there would be musical performances. So I was lighting all that stuff. Um, and then I got a job, uh, being the substitute LD at Sesame street when I was working for, um, Fiorentino associates. I was working for Amy Fiorentino as a, freelancer. I wasn't on the staff, but I was a freelancer. And they gave me quite a lot of work. And so again, it must have been 1992 or 93, around there. I I was lighting Sesame Street from time to time. And then a few years later, I became the lighting designer, uh, one of two lighting designers full time for Sesame Street. That's when I was working for Burner and Brill. Um, And um, Bill Burner was um, the lead lighting designer. And then I came in after him. And did that for a few years.
0: I definitely have a couple of questions about Sesame Street. Yeah, go ahead. First of all, how do you light Big Bird and Snuffleupagus in the same scene?
2: Uh, well, you have to have you have to have a light on a stand. You have to have like a 2K Fresnel on a stand blasting into Snuffleupagus and make sure it doesn't hit Big Bird at all. And you have to take all the down light off of Big Bird because his big beak creates this long shadow on his chest. So Big Bird doesn't want to have any doesn't want to have any downlight. He can deal with backlight if it's far enough away, but no downlight in Big Bird. And Snuffleupagus is just like a black hole. He would suck up light no matter what you. It's it's like you couldn't put enough light on on that puppet. But that's what we did. We would just have a like a two K on a stand, just dedicated to Snuffleupagus wherever he went, and you'd have to choreograph it. So you know around the cameras um and uh, because
0: i mean you know they're not just doing stand-ups i mean you know big Big bird is skating around he's doing all kinds of stuff big
2: bird is only skating around for if he could have set up the scene you know we would do these long panoramic scenes with the jib you know where the jib is going around the entire street to set up the segment um so then maybe big bird is skating around there but then once we block off, he's, these, these puppet scenes are pretty much well, stationary. I mean, every now and then there's some movement, but they don't move too far usually, unless it's a production number. Other than that, they kind of stay. Where they are, because the logistic you know the puppeteers are on these little rollies on the ground, and they've and they've got monitors each puppeteer's got his own monitor there, and for them to move too far to to move all that stuff together is really hard to do, so those puppet scenes are pretty much stationary, so you can you can get very detailed with the lighting Um, you can keep light off you can light one puppet keep it off the other puppet as long as they're not moving around too much and they didn't really move around too much Um, but those big panoramic scenes were great because we had this enormous chip and and we go around the entire studio so it was you could see all the puppets moving around the neighborhood and they could do all this motion because that all it was was a big wide shot and they weren't tethered to their monitors or anything like that. They could just go wherever they were going. But then when we lock off and do the scene, they're pretty much stationary.
0: How is how is a show like Sesame Street assembled uh, when it comes to designing the system, designing the plan? Um, let's say just for the Main Street setup. Uh, you know, like what's the process? Do, do you need do you need to know like sample camera? Plots? Do you need to see sample shot lists just to start working on that?
2: No, no, not not just to start it. I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a technique to doing a light plot, right? Depending on what what it is, if it's a dance concert, if it's if it's a, if it's a um, soap opera, something like Sesame Street, so it, you have all these sets. So you have a ground plan with all the scenery and the sets, and you know whether or not there's going to be an audio boom, which there is. So what does that mean? That means that you have a lot of cross key lighting, and you have a lot of soft lighting coming in from the front because you want to make sure you don't get boom shadows on people. You're lighting. You're just lighting the set like you're lighting any set. Um, you don't get into the spe- You get into the specifics of it once the show is up and running. Then you're adding in special lighting per uh, episode. Depending on what that episode needs, but just to start off, light. You know, we would get the ground plan. Or you know, when Bill originally lit it in in a new set in, in uh, Astoria, he just had the this massive ground plan with all the different sets. Mister Hooper's store, and then the the um, the big courtyard, and then the one two three stoop, and then there was a whole new set that was put in called around the corner. It was a little hotel, and it was a park. And you're just laying in basic repertory lighting that you would do for any kind of show like that. You know, it was a lot of space lights from up above just to do a general illumination to light the entire set, you know, space lights. And, um, and then it's just a lot of Fresnels, <laughs> a lot of Lecos to put, um, texture. And like in the park, it was a gazillion Lecos with leaf patterns in them to just, accentuate the leafiness of the park and and the buildings had to had all had texture on them with more goes with patterns and then a lot of big fresnels to uh do big cross washes and a lot of soft light from the front and that's the standard thing you know okay
0: um is there a b unit on sesame street to do all those other studio setups is there a what like a b unit to handle all the other setups for sesame street
2: um, no, it was just us. There would always be, once a week, there would be something called the Muppet Day. And like Frank Oz would come by uh, and do his characters, um, and, which was always a treat because he was really not around anymore in those days. And that entire day would be devoted to doing Muppet bits, um, just mu- Muppet bits in these little um, sets, specific little sets that were put up around the studio um, for these special bits. I'm, um, I'm
0: trying so hard not to geek out, but I, I love the Muppets so much, and I love the Muppeteers so much. You know, I'm a huge fan of Carol Spinney and Frank Oz yes. and the late Jim Henson, and yes. it's you know, I love hearing the story of working with them.
2: Well, um, um, Jim was, Jim was never, when I was there, Jim was never there. I, I met Jim at his, at his studio. They the Muppets had their own studio on East 67th Street, a tiny little place where we did a lot of work there. A lot of uh, home videos were shot there and um, some other shows were shot. The Dog City was shot there. Um, that's where I met Jim. But at Sesame Street, I met Frank. Um, and like I said, these Muppet skits, They would bank them, so we would crank out a lot of them, and then they would just be in the in the in the library there. And so they can insert them into any show they need to whenever the the time arises. They weren't part of a specific script for the day. A normal day would you know there would be a script, um, whatever's happening that day at Hooper's or wherever. Um, um, So that was very different from these. These were standalone bits that could be inserted into any show. So that was, a lot, that was a lot of fun. And what else can I tell What else do you want to know about Sesame Street? You grew up watching it, I imagine.
0: Uh, yeah. I think everybody did, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I got to tell you, when I was a senior in high school, I used to get home early, like 12.30 in the afternoon. I, was, I had a half a day because I was ahead of myself or something. And, I, and Sesame Street was just coming on back then, and I used to watch it because I was into the puppetry of it, and I went on to work for a puppet company um, like when I was 20, 21 years old.
0: I had no idea. Well,
2: oh, yeah, I forgot, I forgot about that in my long line of achievements. Um,
0: That's pretty cool, actually.
2: It, yeah, it was called the Pickwick Puppet Theater. This was in 1975, I believe, and, um, or 74. It was right across the river in New Jersey, and um, it was mostly rod puppets, and Ken Moses was a friend of, of my technical director in, in, at Buffalo, and so that was the connection. And he hired me for a summer to um, build puppet. He taught me how to build puppets, and then he taught me how to be a puppeteer because they every now and then they needed an extra puppeteer to go on and do a show. And so he taught me how to be a puppeteer. That was uh, that was a very unique summer, <laughs> I must say. Anyway, so that's so then after Sesame Street. Um, I went off to do Letterman. Um, uh, Letterman became our client, Berner and Brill. Um, picked up Letterman in 92,
0: I think. So when he moved to the you know, 90, When he moved to, yeah,
2: whenever that was, 92, 93, <laughs> yeah. 94, I can't remember. The first season that he went into CBS, we we weren't doing it. We did the second season. That's when we started. And then I stayed there for a couple of years until, uh, until I left the company. So when I left the company, um, I left the show.
0: I remember going to see Letterman uh, just as, a, as an audience member. I expected it to be a lot brighter. Just having seen shows on TV, uh, just as a viewer, it was really the first time I'd ever been in a television studio. And I didn't expect uh, it to be possible to light television at such a sort of normal room right. room level.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Back then, you know, I, can't, I can't remember where we were lighting that at, but it was probably 80-foot candles back then, I'm I'm going to guess. But, yeah, a lot of people are, are um, surprised by that. You know, it makes it easier for us to light it at those levels. You know, and the audience, the studio audience, is not our first concern. Um, so even if it's a little dark to them... Um, that's the way it is because we, we we're concerned about the home audience not the studio ones of course there are other shows concert shows where you can't just say that because a lot of people paid money to come see this concert that's being televised so you can't get it it can't be too dark
0: no oh, no i know i know you've done shows like that yes. where you're yeah. lighting for the people in the room and the people watching at right, home right and what's right uh how do you handle that
2: well, you know, you just find the happy medium, so it's it's it works for them and it works for you. That's all. That's not a big trick. It just you, you have to light probably a little brighter than maybe you want to, because you have to take into consideration the live audience's um, viewing of it. But um, it's not a big deal. You just light it a little bit brighter, and that's all. all right. I and mean,
0: yeah. by the same token, you know, I've seen some theater LDs struggle mightily when they first try and do on-camera stuff. What would you say that that people who are trying to transition can do to keep that from happening to them?
2: Well, you, you want to get in touch with a television lighting designer and see if you can hang out with him and see what he's doing. That's what I did. I um, I call Alan was my friend. Alan was working Alan Adelman who's working at Fiorentino, and then I just contacted all the other lighting designers who were working for Fiorentino and asked them if they would mind if I came and hung out. Um, at their gig, and could just watch them work, and they all said yes, and that was the beginning. You, you have to. It's very hard. You can It's very hard to go in cold. I mean, if you have no experience with working with cameras, then you're going to have a problem. I think the biggest pitfall, really, I suppose, is. Um, It's so important to light somebody's face. I found this out the hard way when I was, when I first started. You know, I came across a lot of temperamental talent who would complain about a shadow under their eye or under their nose or whatever. And to me, you know, I, I couldn't see it. I mean, I couldn't see it until it was pointed out to me. I just thought they looked fine. And then I realized that, no, they didn't look fine. They have this, this shadow, which at home on a television set, Depending on how big your TV set is, can be like a pretty large shadow. And these people make their living by having their face on TV all the time, and they are very sensitive to the way they look. So if you bring, if you're lighting them at too high an angle, or too harsh a light, or, or whatever, or, or too many lights, and you're creating too many shadows, there's a whole host of problems you can create for yourself when you're lighting somebody's face. Unless you know how to do it. You know, a a theatrical LD is not doesn't have that experience, Um, and I I didn't have the experience, but I knew because I I knew ahead of time because I I shadowed all these guys and I saw what they were doing and I went oh wow you really got to bring the key light in that low, that low to the camera wow you know and then I could see the difference between doing it that way and doing you know higher up and higher up and higher up oh look the shadows but you know that's it's physics right. But you, you don't have to even think about that when you're lighting a dance concert. You don't really have to think about it a whole lot when you're lighting a play. Um, the ankles are coming in kind of high. You go to a Broadway show, and, uh, but it's okay. But if that show is going to be televised for Live from Lincoln Center or whatever, uh, a television LD is brought in to relight it so that theatrical lighting will work for television.
1: Uh, did you have any trouble when you were making the transition with different types of gear like going from dance shows where you're using mainly licos to going to big soft lights
2: you know when I when I when I started being an electrician for Allen um, during my off days from the dance touring and that's when I was, it was mostly Mola Richardson lighting equipment back then everywhere um, so it all you know a Fresnel is a Fresnel but a theatrical Fresnel is different from a television Fresnel How is it different? Mostly the barn doors, you know? The barn doors would make me crazy on a, on a mole 1K. Because I was just used to like Altman theatrical Fresnel square barn doors. Oh, they just slide right into the frame. What's with these circular barn doors? you know, so I was having, it would be stupid things like that. Um, the lights, you know, uh, uh, scoops. So I had to learn about soft lights. I hadn't seen soft lights before, but I'd seen Lecos and Fresnels and scoops and all the rest of them, strip lights. Um, I, I had not seen, um, hangers with stirrups and flags and dots and fingers and all that stuff all the grip gear well, that was absolutely brand new to me i had to learn all that stuff and because we were we were doing the rigging also it wasn't a lot of these first shows that I, a lot of the shows i was doing were non-union shows we didn't have we would do rigging ourselves you know, we're rigging pipes and heavy things like that and and trusses and stuff like that and we just did it all so i had to learn all that stuff i didn't know what i was doing um, with that um, but the equipment like so like i said before a light is a light for the most part right that technology was all the same it, it was just all i just had to learn the mole richardson stuff so what i did was i got a mole richardson catalog and that was my textbook that was my lighting textbook i just familiarized myself with all the gear in the mole richardson catalog book and that's how I kind of learned um, television lighting gear. Yeah.
1: And as time has gone on, and uh, I think the theater gear has even more infiltrated television, moving lights, LED lights, that sort of thing. Have you been keeping up with that? you want to talk about how that affected design and changed things?
2: I guess automated lighting. You know, automated lighting was that started in, that, in music con- concert lighting. That's where it first appeared. And um, I think Genesis, right? Genesis had the first moving light rig. They had Absolutely,
0: the, the, VL, the VL1s. Right.
2: Um, and then that stuff migrated into television. Uh, so I don't you know, I just, it, it, it's, I don't see, I don't see any radical differences. You know, again, it's, a light is a light, you know, it may be a different light, maybe a very sophisticated light. Um, uh, but, you know, certainly automated lighting lets you do so many things. And then using like VL1000s. So using automated lighting as key lights, that was, that was something that was, um, pretty different. And really um, helpful because now, you know, if you had to, you, know, you didn't have to have a permanently mounted light and some last minute thing happens and now the talent's going to be over there and you don't have time to hang a light, just spin this light around that has a that has a 3,200 Kelvin source in it and you're good to go. So that was, VL 1000s were great.
0: Actually, I felt like the thing that made them so great for what we do on TV is they have a diffuser that really works.
2: That's true. They have a diffuser that really works.
0: You know, and that's, uh, you know, sometimes try and press pictures into use that, are, you know, that are more sophisticated, that are brighter, that have more options and it will sort of move faster. But there's just no way to get the edge rolled off enough. There's no way to get the light soft enough.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Which is kind of a pain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, can you walk us through, say, a day of working on a show like Rachel Ray?
2: Sure. Uh, I show up a half an hour before you do, and I go to the production meeting. At the production meeting is the director and the associate director and the, uh, the supervising producer and segment producers, and the segment producers, are their responsibility is to produce the individual segments. So maybe there's five of them at the meeting. And they run down who's going to be on the show and what the segment is going to be about and what part of the set we're going to do it and if there's anything special that's going to be needed. Um, so uh, if there is going to re- if it's going to require some extra lighting, that's why I have to be at this meeting because they'll 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 say, well, we want a light cue here, and then so so and so is going to fly down from here, and we need a light to hit them there, and stuff that's not in the repertory light plot. So um, I learn about all that at the production meeting. Mm -hmm. That goes on for about half an hour. Then we come up, and what do we do? We chip the cameras. So all the cameras line up, and we're registering the cameras for the day. Um,
0: And generally you chip them to a sort of stock queue.
2: Yes, well, what we do is we chip them to the Rachel behind the kitchen counter look, um, which is wherever we go on that set, we're pretty close to the same, um, color temperature and the same foot candle reading. I mean, it's almost impossible to get it dead on set to set to set, but they're pretty close. So we just bring up that cue with behind the cooking behind the counter cue and we chip to that. There are some video engineers out there who don't like to do that. They prefer, um, putting uh, a, a light at full up on the chip chart, and they chip some other way. And then you know, then they just paint it in uh, when the actual light cue comes up. So I usually defer to the video engineer for chipping, uh, but, I do, but I would say that most would prefer a real cue from the show, and, and they chip to that. So we do that. That goes on for about, what, 15, 20 minutes? And then uh, then the director will, well, then there will be a camera meeting where the director speaks to the cameraman and tells them what he learned at the production meeting that we were at earlier. While that's going on, I am attempting to f- tweak the cues as necessary with you uh, for whatever the special setups are for that day. Then after the camera meeting, is we we're supposed to rehearse, And what do we do? We don't have full-blown rehearsals because Rachel um, is never there to rehearse. Um, Maybe we'll have a stand-in sometimes for her. Um, But we do rehearse, and we we see what the camera angles are going to be, and then that's it, right? Um, Sometimes the rehearsals are more uh, intense than at other times, but if it's going to be a standard day, pretty much we won't really look at standard stuff. this could be a living room interview, we're not going to really bother to look at it because we've seen it a thousand times before. But if it's in, if it's a little different, if it's off it, off the mark a bit or the living room is going to be dressed in a different way or something like that, then yeah, we'll take a look at it. Uh, I guess the, the, only, the only difference between a normal day and a, and a um, performance day is we come in extra early so we have some programming time to light the performance and um, that's probably the only, that's the only difference, right? And then we hope we have enough time to rehearse it all, which we usually do. And then we hope that the uh, haze stays in the air so we can see the beams from the moving lights, and that's, that seems to be a really big challenge for us in this studio. Well,
0: I know one of the things that surprised me about doing stuff on camera is the amount of subtlety doesn't really work, that you need a lot of haze to see any haze. You need a lot of texture to see any texture.
2: Well, you know, I mean, our particular issue, I think, is just the uh, the air currents in that studio. And um, you really shouldn't need a ton of haze. You know, you want a little bit of haze, and ju- but you just want it to hang in the air and not go away. Um, and that's really hard to do. And we can't kill the air conditioning there. Uh, we just can't shut it off and then turn it back on again. We've, I've done that in other studios, but we can't do it here. So you just got to live with it.
0: So, you know, on Rachel, in addition to being um, uh, the co-designer with uh, Alan Blacher, you're also the lighting director. Yes. And I know there's a little bit of confusion about what the job of lighting director is, especially among theater people and among people that do events. Right. In the event world, people sort of use a lot of these terms completely fast and loose. Mm-hmm. What is the job of a lighting director and what are the roles and responsibilities?
2: So lighting directors take over the show from the lighting designer. So the lighting designer designs the show um designs the plot focuses the plot cues the cues the show and then leaves because he's off to do something else he, he he doesn't want to sit on the show on a day-to-day basis so a lighting director is hired to sit on the show uh on a day-to-day basis so the show's been set up initially, but then as time goes on, I mean, I mean, every day it's never the same, right? So the lighting director is making adjustments to the light plot on a daily basis to accommodate whatever the show uh, is doing that day. Um, you tweaking, you're constantly tweaking key lights and backlights and fill lights for different guests. They're coming in for an interview. You're relighting bits that get set up in in wherever they're being set up. I mean, there's there's a, the repertory um, light focus around the studio, but then it always has to get adjusted, always depending on how they're going to shoot um, the segment. Within that set, um, so you're constantly making adjustments all day long, and then um, they'll add some new element to the show, and then you're li- you're actually you de- lighting that from scratch yourself. Uh, musical performances, you're pretty much lighting from scratch yourself. So you're a lighting designer and you're a lighting director. Your title, though, is lighting director uh, because because the lighting designer of record is not you. It's somebody else who, who, who set it up initially over the course of time with Rachel. I mean, it's gone through so many changes and, um, I've made so many changes to it. Um, that about, I don't know, I guess three years ago, um, Alan and Alan Blacher and I agreed that my title should change to lighting designer. So we're co-lighting designers now because my, um, Footprint is so over this light plot now as much as Alan's um, that um, it warrants the change of title. Um, but that's what lighting directors do. Lighting directors um, uh, manage the day-to-day lighting of the show, uh, uh, although they weren't the initial designer of record. That's pretty. That's the best way I well, can describe it. Thank you. I it. appreciate it. Now I know
0: you've been nominated uh, for a couple Emmys. I know you got nominated for for *Sesame Street*. You got nominated for *Rachel Ray*. You got nominated for something else too.
2: Uh, And I got nominated for um, *Between the Lions*, and that's the one I won.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) What was that?
2: *Between the Lions* was a puppet show, like um, a Muppet-type puppet show um, that was on PB. Was that on PBS? Yes, it was about reading. It was a double entendre. *Between the Lions*, so like the lions at the Forty Second Street Library. Do you
0: see what I did there?
2: <laughs> it was uh, a family of lions who live at the 42nd Street Library, and it was about teaching, reading, and um, the love of books to little kids. It's a great show, and um, it ran for about three years, I think. Uh, Bill Berner and I were co uh lighting designers on that actually i think when i got that emmy i think i got the emmy as lighting director and bill got it as lighting designer we did that out at kaufman and that was a great that was a really great show very similar to like a sesame street kind of show the same the same puppeteer a lot of those puppeteers who did um between the lines also did um sesame street stuff and Hanson stuff so that was it those are the three my big three nominations
0: how long was between the lions on the air
2: Um, You know something? They still shoot it, I think, down in Mississippi. It's very strange. They ran out of money. Um, The budget just disappeared and production stopped in New York. And then I think a couple of years later, um, a public television station in, I think it's in Mississippi, came up with the money and they wanted to keep doing it. And so they moved it down there. I don't know when those episodes air. I don't know if they're still I don't know if the production is still happening with it, but here, like I said, I think it ran for three years here, um, in the when was it? The very early two thousands or the late nineties? I can't remember. But you know, what happens a lot with a lot of PBS shows, um they, they get funded for about three years from PBS and then they're on their own. And if they can't generate their own income, no matter how critically acclaimed they are, they disappear. So what a lot of them try to do, I did another one. I did a show called Ghostwriter in the early 90s, which was um, a bunch of teenage kids who solve mysteries. It also was about... Um,
0: you remember that. I remember that show, yeah. It was channel,
2: about yeah. reading, right? I think problem solving and reading and things like that. This show was a critically acclaimed hit. It, after the third season, it, it stopped getting funded. And it had to find its own funding so what it tried to market one of the characters one of the characters for a bunch of episodes was called the slime monster and they tried to make it a toy that people would buy like a Tickle Me Elmo you know as if you can like one Tickle Me Elmo will, will finance many many seasons of many many shows so that's what they tried to do and they mar- they built this slime monster puppet and tried to market it and it was a big failure unfortunately and that show they couldn't figure out how to get funding anymore and the show went away but that's kind of what happens you know that's why a lot of these shows will you'll see a lot of these puppets get marketed as toys for kids and it's a lot of extra income for the show and allows you to stay on the air
0: so what well, at, th- at this point what would you say to someone who wants to who's coming out of college who's coming out of their master's uh program and wants to do anything in this business they want to look into television they want to look into lighting for dance or for theater how would you tell them to proceed
2: I think um, you have to make contact with um, people who are already doing it you got to make contact with professionals who are already doing it that hasn't changed I think you know for years and years and years that seems to be the only way you know it's all about contacts you could be incredibly talented and if you don't get a chance to show anybody your talent you know then what? So you need somebody to open a door for you. You need somebody to help you. So, and, um, no matter where you are, you don't have to be in New York, but no matter where you are, you have to find the working professionals in your community, um, and ask if, if you can tag along. And I would say almost all the time, they would be very happy to have you come by. I mean, I'm very, I'm flattered when, when students yeah, I get emails from time to time from people asking me, you know, if I can if they can come by and watch something, or if they can assist, and and um, I always say yes uh, because that's what I did. And uh, had those designers not allowed me to hang out with them, I would be much poorer for it, and it would be a much harder road for me. But the and the other thing I guess would be just try and work, you know, even if. You know, you got to get over the problem of um, not being paid what you want to be paid. You know, it's a lot more difficult now. It's it costs a lot more money to live, especially in New York. When I was doing this in my early twenties, my rent was a hundred and eighty dollars a month. Um, and I was earned and I was actually, my rent was $200 a month and I was earning $220 a week, but I could survive on that. And I was able to work and live. Uh, It's a lot harder now, but getting back to what I was saying, if the work presents itself, you got to do it. I mean, the only way you're going to learn how to do it is to do it. And, um, Um, if you come, if you came out of a really good university program that allowed, that gave you an opportunity to do a lot of main stage productions, yeah, that's great. Um, you'll be a little bit ahead of the game, but then you got to learn what it's like doing it in the professional world where you don't have all that time that you've got in college, usually. and you don't, you, know, the, you don't have a financial pressure. There's no budget that, I mean, there's a budget, yeah, for the show, but there's, there's not a, a real-world commercial budget that um, you have to stick to. And, um, and, uh, and, and let's say you're, you're in a, a theater where, the, where you're renting time, You got to get it done within that amount of time. You don't have to worry about that when you're in college. So, yeah, I think you just when the opportunity avails itself, you got to do it, even if you think it's not the greatest thing in the world. But you got to build up a resume, and um, so you got to work.
0: You know what you said about the time. That's that's a really critical thing, and it seems to get worse all the time. That uh, you know, as we have more and more technological things to help us, it's that people somehow expect us to take less time to do things. You know, even though you can make the case that it takes longer to work with multi-channel fixtures, fixtures that do a whole lot of different things, uh, just because it takes longer to figure out what to make them do and then make them do it. Right. And the stuff is bigger, heavier than it ever has been before. Um, how do you structure your process such that you can fit it into these sometimes ultra tight spaces, and structure it so that way when you do have the time to do things, you're not wasting any time.
2: I edit it. Um, you know, I have these grand ideas of what I want to do, and then once I see what reality is, I just I just edit it. Um, instead of ten cues in the song, there's going to be two.
0: So you just start removing the least, the least critical thing, and then the next least next least exactly. critical thing.
2: Exactly, I, I start from. I, that's exactly what I do. I look at, at you know what the best case scenario would have been, and then I just start whittling away. Um, depend, because I know there's not going to be enough time to to do it. I mean, what else can you What else can you do? I'm, as far as setting up the day, I mean, I'll think about. All right, how am I going to? I'll think about. Um, the best usage of my time in terms of, all right, where do I have to hang? Where do I have to focus? Which should I do first? You know, will this take longer than that? I'll think about that just on a pure technical level, which lights are going to take? Is it easier for me to put this light here or there? Will that save me more time? I'd rather have it here, but it'll be just as, it'll, it'll be a little less great over there, but that'll save me 10 minutes if I do that, so I'll put it over there instead. So I'll, you know, make decisions like that.
0: Do you depend on your gapper? Um, for very, some of that at any level
2: yeah very much i always like on rachel i always ask tom i always ask for his input because there are technical issues that he's aware of that i'm not uh in terms of uh, how long it's going to take to take this light and stick it on the grid over there he'll know he'll say well you know we don't have any circuits over there so we got to run 200 feet just to get a circuit over there or he'll say uh, you know we don't have a, we don't have the gear we don't have the grip, we don't have the grip gear we need in order to hang that over there. So you'll have to come up with another solution or hang a different light, stuff like that. Um, but I always rely on him, and then it's just in terms of he he has a very good knowledge of how long it takes to work in that studio. You know, he's up in the grid with the guys running around the place. I'm not, and so he knows that if I want to do this, that, and the other, it's probably going to take this amount of time. Where I may think yeah. it it maybe would be less and then they'll tell me no it's going to take this amount of time we'll go, Okay. Um, so yeah I always run if there's a special setup coming by I always run it past him first to get his input and then I figure out what I'm going to do and I, get, I ask you sometimes for your input right? that sounds great you know the more help the better and then the other issue is that when you prove to the producers that you can do it in this brief amount of time, which is kind of unrealistic, but you get it done anyway, because you always get it done in the end, no matter what, then they come to expect it. <laughs> well, you did it last time. Why can't, Wait, which, you, do, why which, can't you do it again? And which well, means that
0: now you can never do the full version that you were hoping right, to do, because right, so the, right, you can only ex- ever yeah, do the,
2: right. the Right, and trim down right, from... then you have to explain that to them. Yeah, I did do it last time, but it's not what I really wanted to do, and it would have looked a whole lot better if we had this amount of time rather than the amount of time you gave us to do it, and it's not something we want to make a habit of. You know, we're going to get it done because we're professionals, and that's what we do, but it doesn't mean we have to like it.
1: <laughs> do you think in another 20 years incandescence will be a thing of the past?
2: I, I do. I really do. Um I think... uh
1: and do you think that will be any sort of a loss?
2: Will that be? a um, I don't know if there'll be a loss. I'll tell you the truth, um, a lot of the, a lot of the LED Fresnels and, and Lecos that I've been seeing lately um, put them put them up on, uh, against the wall with a traditional unit, and I couldn't even tell the difference. You know, um, I think it, I think uh, quartz halogen lights are gonna, for performance lighting. Pretty much going to go away. I think it's going to be all LED. You know, people thought fluorescents were going to, you know, supplant traditional lighting, and I think that fluorescents are going to go away also. I think it's going to be 100% LED lighting everywhere.
0: Yeah, fluorescence had a lot of great qualities, but they, they they were missing a couple of them, you know, one of them being dimming and the other one being controllability.
2: Yeah, well, you know, they make those there's, there's dimming units, but um I I never you know, there certainly was no there wasn't a fluorescent uh ellipsoidal. That never that never happened and I never did did we see any fluorescent uh Fresnels? I'm not sure. Not that I know of. Not that I know of. So it couldn't you know. And and then as soon as LEDs showed the promise that they that they're showing, I think any further technological leaps of fluorescent lighting, nobody was interested anymore. Uh, you know, I did a, I lit gazillions of um, news channels, and they all and my marching orders were fluorescent lights, you know, all fluorescents. Now the marching orders are all LED, all LED. So we were doing fluorescent lighting all the time, um, you know, and just takes a lot less power and a lot longer lamp life and LEDs are even longer than that, longer than the fluorescence. So whoever, you know, they win. It's, 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 economics really. I mean, if, if, if the LEDs weren't, didn't give you all these savings, then would they be as wonderful, you know, would, would, would they take over as quickly? I don't know, you know, but um, they, you know, besides, Besides them just being great fixtures, and, and you don't need dimmers, and just the cost savings, and the ancillary cost savings for like air conditioning and up studios and stuff like that. That's and, and just you know replacing lamps. that you save so much money that um, that's a home run, right? That's the way of the future. And the future is here. The future is now.
0: All right, uh, Stephanie. Do you have any other thoughts?
1: No, I think I'm good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, Mitchell, do you have
0: any parting shots?
2: Parting shots? Um, no, I think this. Uh, no, I've, I have had a great time. I may, I feel like I'm on uh, the Leonard Lopez show or something. <laughs> it's great. I always wondered what it looked like in a little uh, recording studio when you're on. Well, the, here's a the hint: it doesn't, doesn't look anything radio. like this. <laughs> oh, some. I bet you some of them do look a little bit like this. But this is uh, this is very nice. I thank you for inviting me.
0: Where can people find more information about you and about your work?
2: Well, you know, I have almost zero presence online, and that's intentional. It's just, I'm not on Facebook. The only place I'm at is LinkedIn, and I don't even have my profile on LinkedIn.
0: Yes, I discovered that while I was doing research for
2: this podcast. (laughs) You'd have to Google me, and then a lot of dance stuff comes up, I must say. And the stuff on IMDB, a lot of that is not even accurate. Um, They have... Sometimes they list me as things, titles that I, I never had. Um, so, Although
0: I did find uh, out that you were the assistant technical director on a production of From the Memoirs of Punch's Pilot.
2: Yes, that was when I was in graduate school. Wow, you actually found that? Yes, I did. That's it's quite amazing. I was Yes, I was the assistant technical director for the, from The Memoirs of Punch's Pilot by Eric Bentley, who wrote that, who was one of the foremost interpreters of um, Brecht. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, th- that was 1976, I think, something like that. But anyway, I have no presence, um, um, because I just don't want to be, I don't want to be, uh, in the ether. I don't want to be in the digital ether. I just want to be in So, um, it hasn't hurt my, uh, career yet. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, so until it does, I'm gonna I'm gonna lie low as far as the internet is concerned. So, oh. if
1: someone wanted to contact you about shadowing you around the studio, how would they get a hold of
2: you? Go to LinkedIn, and just you can find me on LinkedIn.
0: I'm pretty sure you're the only Mitchell Bogart on LinkedIn.
2: I'm pretty sure I am also the only Mitchell Bogart on LinkedIn. Um, what I what I want what I started doing with LinkedIn was I I never uh, I would get asked to um, I, I would get solicited by people and. If you're in the industry, um, I would just automatically say yes for the most part. But I never myself um, solicited anybody else. Um, And um, I have been contacted a few times on LinkedIn. Um, But I just don't have, I don't even have my profile up there. So all it says, I think, is Mitchell Bogart, lighting designer in New York City. I think that's about it. All right. So, yes, I'd be more than happy to um, invite anyone who wants to come by the show and see what we do to contact me on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks very, very much, Mitchell. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank
0: you very much.
2: Okay. Thanks so much for
0: listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Thank you to Mitchell Bogart. Remember to check him out on LinkedIn. Thank you to Stephanie Schechter, our fabulous co-host today. And don't forget to visit us at castinglightpodcast.com. On Twitter at Podcasting Light and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for joining us and have a good show.